welcome to the No BS Virtual Book Club's live video series and with us today to share the stories behind the 10 books that had the most significant impact on his life path is 21st century mystic and human design world teacher Chaitan Parkin. If you're not familiar with Chaitan's work, here's a little bit about him. He was schooled in England, he travelled the world as a troubleshooting mechanical engineer and an ocean diving engineer. And in India in 1979, while he was with the enlightened mystic Osho, his abilities to read for people surfaced when his gifts were recognized by two savants who told him to get ready for a system that would come into his life and that he would introduce to the entire world. Chaitan used his gifts to read for people. He read hands, cards, the I Ching, astrology, and other esoteric systems to prepare himself for this new system. And then in 1993, he was introduced to human design. And of course, straight away, he recognized that what the savants had foretold and had studied, read and talked worldwide ever since. Um, he's the author of a number of books on human design, including Human Design, Discover the Person You Were Born to Be, and The Book of Lines, and 21st Century View of the I Ching, and The Book of Destinies, Discover the Life You Were Born to Live. And they're all being translated and released in other languages. So 27 years later, Chetan continues teaching human design online and in person worldwide when the planes are flying, of course, often with his wife and partner, uh, Carola Eastwood. Chetan, welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's lovely to be here, Sandy. Great. Thank you. Um, I have, we always start with two questions. The first one is, what do books mean to you? Goodness, books to me encapsulate wisdom. And wisdom is something that every individual has the opportunity to gain in their lifetime, but is not necessarily able to be transmitted in a conversation or in a talk. So a book is really that possibility for anyone to sit down and encapsulate all the thoughts, knowledge, and encapsulate it into a form of wisdom that can then be transferred into somebody else's life. So hugely important on so many different levels. Mm. And what was the process like for you having to go back over your life and just pick 10 books that made an impact? I'm oh, sure there were fun. a lot more. Yeah, a lot of fun, Sandy. A lot of, I mean, goodness, I, I'm surrounded by books here. And it's just, yeah, it's such a great thing to have had that opportunity to literally pick out probably 10 phases of my life. 10 very different points wow. in my life where there was, you know, all of us, we come to a crossroads every now and again, which way are we going to go with it? And these books kind of delineated points in time in my life where there was an option, something else or something momentous had happened to me. And the book absolutely made a place in my life there. Actually, that's a great way to do it, you know, for different phases in your life, because I'm sure that when we're, you know, waking up or, you know, eagerly reading everything we can get our hands on, there's a number of books at that point that make an impact. And then later on, you know, not quite so many. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But I'm still reading. I do a book every week or so. So, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't stop. <laughs> no, it doesn't, does it? Okay, so the unsurprisingly the first book 
on your list is glimpses of a golden childhood the rebellious childhood of a great enlightened one of course that's osho i love the fact that it's published by the rebel publishing house <laughs> 1985 <laughs> so what was it about this book was this before you met osho no this was this was uh, well into my time with osho and it was a book he published while he was in oregon uh, in the United States at uh, a ranch and the ranch became quite notorious. There was a whole video series recently made about it, Wild Wild Country. Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen it, I'd thoroughly recommend watching it. And then also watch some of Osho's discourses as well, you know, and just to get the counterbalance because it was very much an outsider's view. But Glimpses of a Golden Childhood was, this man was born and it said, you know, the, for the first three days of his life, he didn't eat didn't cry, just was totally content, like he was in meditation. And that's very rare, you know, nobody could get him to eat or anything. And, and uh, you know, after three days, he decided to join the world. And it became very obvious early on that uh, this was a remarkable child, um, learned things so quickly. And for one reason or another, his parents gave him to their parents his grandparents to look after him, to raise him in the countryside. So this was a place where there was no electricity, no roads, right? There was a big river nearby, but the river just, the, the village just ran itself kind of thing. And that's the environment he grew up with, these two adoring grandparents. And, you know, he could just had free reign to do whatever he wanted to do. Didn't go to school, no preschool, nothing like that. Just, you know, would go and talk with people. And found a number of I would have to say wise people in the neighborhood and, you know, started debating with them and finding out, you know, how does everyone get a view of life? And at the age of seven, his granddad died and he then kind of got transposed to go and live with his parents. But by that time, he'd already, you know, formed enough of a, what can I say, presence or personality or whatever that you know, the, the parental kind of, you got to do this, got to do that, had absolutely no effect on him whatsoever. So we, could, we would have to say he was given this opportunity to be a very free spirit from very early on. Uh, he did the schooling thing. He went to university. He never attended lectures. He would always go and sit in the library and read books, you know, the subject matter and more and more and more. Studied philosophy. And in the end, you know, came out with one of these, what, summa cum laude or whatever they call it, you know, the highest qualification you can get by literally going into his exam, sitting down for 20 minutes for a three hour exam and walking out afterwards and acing his, whatever it was he was doing there. Wow. So a huge intelligence, huge understanding, and literally came to a point in time in his life where he was fully versed in philosophy and could know both sides of any story. So, for example, he then became the debating champion in India and uh, rolled up for the championship debate. And being India, you know, there's a lot of communication issues and the participant, the other challenger didn't show up. You know, so they wait there and wait there and wait there. This is a championship debate and the other guy doesn't come. So they say, well, you go ahead and do your presentation first. So he gives his presentation, you know, and everyone's going, wow, that's incredible. Never thought of these arguments before. And the other person still hadn't rolled up, so he crossed the floor and argued for his opponent and ended up winning the debate for his opponent. <laughs> so, you know, basically his whole thing was understanding that logic always has two sides to it. 
And so, you know, if you're hell bent on one issue in life and that's all you're going to pursue, then you're going to avoid the other side of things, the other argument of it. And in a sense, his whole teaching was based all around that. Was this, you know, in the end, you could argue this, you could argue that, but what's your point? You know, what's the power of the individual? And so this Glimpses of a Golden Childhood was a whole story about all the energies and exciting adventures and stuff he had as a child growing up, but always leading towards my living here. You know, what is my truth? And how am I going to present my truth? And if you, if you study Osho's work, you'll find that is the whole thing, is so many opportunities in life, there's no duplicates in the whole of existence. Don't live somebody else's life for them. You know, live your own life and be very creative with that because that is the gift. And so that Glimpses of a Golden Childhood is just, it's one story after another, after another. You know, challenging these, these uh, sages and people that would wander around India, the sadhus, you know, they'd come into the village and people would host them and they'd give talks. And this little boy would challenge them on their, you know, why are you giving this line of reasoning in your religious texts and stuff? And literally chasing people out of town sometimes because he could counter any argument they came back with. So a really extraordinary story of uh, somebody who grew up on his own terms, basically. Wow. What a yeah. childhood. Yeah. yeah. The second book also, Osho, Autobiography of a Spiritually Incorrect Mystic, which was published, I think, in 2000. So again, Osho really was a tremendous joker, tremendous trickster. All the time, you know, seeking to empower the individual. So anyone that came up with some bullshit idea of what religion was supposed to be, you know, he would challenge them and always find a counter argument to whatever they came out with. He literally had these uh, discourse series in India and he would do one month English and one month Hindi. So when there was an English series going on, you know, all the English speaking or mostly English speaking people would be there for that. But then every month there would be this Hindi series. And, you know, he'd put out the word, this month I'm gonna talk about Krishna. You know, and the word would go all around India, everyone, oh, the debating champion of India is going to talk about Krishna. So, you know, the ashram fills up with all these very, you know, strict Hindus coming in for this series. They want to get the bottom line on Krishna. So it's a, like an 11-day series. In the first four days, you know, Krishna, what an incredible guy. I mean, wow, amazing. You know, all these brilliant things he did in his life. You know, day five, well, you know, maybe uh, not so clever. You know, there's this thing about his life and, you know, there's a few questionable issues here. Day six, seven, eight, it's like, oh, Krishna, what a fruitcake. You know, like, God, can you imagine somebody doing these things and, you know, and people literally getting up and running for the exit. You know, these Hindus, they, they're all of a sudden, oh, their whole belief system is being taken to pieces. And of course, by the end of it, the 11th day, you know, there are about, you know, 10, 20, 30 Hindus left there and they got it. They understood, you know, that we're all crazy. Every single person on this planet is crazy. It's just pointing at whom. But the thing is, if you're stuck on somebody else's dogma, somebody else's belief system, then you're in trouble because you're not living an authentic life. And the ones that got it, you know, they really got it and they just, they couldn't believe they'd found somebody who could actually echo Krishna's message in these times. 
And that was something just absolutely brilliant about Osho. He could echo, he could echo Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, all of these people that had, you know, taken a major scene in the world here. And he would literally tear to pieces all the nonsense around whatever the religion had put in place representing these people, but come out with the actual kernels of what these people's teachings were all about. So, of course, you know, in the, in the eyes of many people, he was an absolute, you know, rascal, you know, a, a, what do they call it, a blasphemer in terms of taking their religion, their precious, you know, cobbled together 2000 year old, God knows how many interpretations it's gone through religion, you know, but the ones that got it, got it. And they got it big time, you know, it's like, wow, you know, now I understand Jesus. Now I understand Krishna on a very, very profound level. So yeah, beautiful stuff. How long were you actually with him? I, the, I arrived in 79. I left the day after he left. He died in 1990. I left the next day. Oh, so, so left about 11 years. Yeah, yeah. It and was how did amazing, amazing. How did you find him? <laughs> you know, um, I had just finished delivering a motor yacht across the Atlantic. This was one of my jobs. Um, and we got caught in a hurricane. And the hurricane was so intense. You know, we were in this 100-foot motor yacht. It was overloaded. It was top-heavy. And we should have sunk several times, you know, waves just breaking right over the top of us, the boat turning right on its side sometimes. No way we should have survived. And it shook me to my core. So I went and we, my mother had a little croft house in the Shetland Islands, totally remote. The nearest person was a mile away. The nearest phone was two miles away. And I sat in this little croft house mulling things over, you know, what was life all about? That was got into a little the other books we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, I read all the Russian authors, cover to cover, read all of, you know, what on earth is the history of this planet? What do people think? I read all the Christian texts. I read the Bible a couple of times, you know, just wanted to find an answer. And then my dad died and he was my real ally. You know, I was just remarking yesterday in my whole time with him, I never heard a crossword from him directed at me, not once. And he was really my ally through all the crazy stuff I was doing. And when he died, you know, I went for his funeral in England and um, it was a miserable affair. And I carried his ashes back up to Scotland and there was a place he wanted me to scatter his ashes and I did that. Went back to sit in my little croft house again. Head in hands one night, you know, about two weeks after he'd died. And I'm just thinking, what the heck, you know, what's next? And the electric had gone out and I had candles in the room and all of a sudden I felt the whole room light up. And I felt his spirit, unmistakable spirit, come into the room, came around in my head, twice around my head, ecstatic. And as he went out, he said, it's all right, you can go now. <laughs> You know, my hair stands on end, or you probably can't see it, but it, I just get that feeling when I remember that occurrence. Like he actually took the trouble to come back from the other side to tell me, get out of wherever you are in this state of moping. Mm. You know, get out and live your life again. And so within a matter of weeks, there used to be a publication in England called Exchange and Mart. And I found an advertisement in that, free trip to Nepal for diesel mechanic. Well, I knew how to fix diesels. And in a space of weeks, I was at the wheel driving a magic bus, 43-seater Mercedes bus from London to Kathmandu. 
And in those days, it was pre-internet. So, you know, there would be notices in the cafes around Europe, pick up, you know, buses coming here, get ready, going to India, you know, and literally I'd roll up at these cafes, everyone would come on board with their backpack, filled up the bus and off we went. 42 people on that bus knew exactly where we were going. One person had no idea and that was me and I was driving. But great adventure, you know, through all through Europe, Yugoslavia as it was in those days, Greece, Turkey, Iran. Turkey was a military junta. Iran was just about to tip the Shah out. Afghanistan was just incredible. And then into over the Khyber Pass into Pakistan, into India. And what happened was out of those first group of passengers on the bus, 26 of them were already on their way to see Osho. Some of them had been living with him before and they were all on that way. And it was, there was something contagious about that trip. And then, you know, they, one of them said, oh, you've got to go and see, you know, you've got to go to the ashram and see. And I did actually make a detour with the trip around Pune in, a, in where the ashram was. And it was amazing. Watch all these orange clad people, young Westerners walking around the place. But I didn't go. But a year later, when I was back in England again, I met this one friend from that trip. And he said, now you've got to go. And so, all right. I did a trip through Africa. It was a six month safari through Africa. And when I left, finished up the trip in Africa, I said, I'm absolutely done. I have no idea anymore. I need to go and talk to this enlightened being in India. And sure enough, I arrived there and it was just, that was it. You know, I had a kind of engineering upbringing, but I didn't really have an engineering mind, but you know, life just was not fitting for me. And mm. I remember I'd, I sat in his discourses. I think it was about the fourth day in his discourses. And I remember coming, it was about an hour and a half long discourse. I remember at the end of the discourse kind of feeling, you know, my lap is absolutely soaking. And I'd been crying the whole time, like literally tears pouring down my front into my lap. And that's when I knew it's like, you know, this is something totally goes beyond my understanding. You know, mm. how did it happen? He touches my heart so deeply by talking that I end up soaked with my own tears. And so that was it. I, I just, you know, received an initiation from him and I just realized the rest of it doesn't matter. You know, to be in the presence of somebody that's got the joke, got the understanding, found the way through and literally is holding space for the rest of us to get through. That was it. So I just made it my whole thing to, to stay in that environment. Hmm. Wow, that is something. And of course you ended up writing his jokes for him didn't you I mean oh, oh well why did he need a joke writer if he was such a trickster and a joker himself it was you know an amazing thing watching because he said you know this is somebody that read more books than anybody else ever has read he's got a library still in Pune in India there's 120,000 books that he personally read 120,000 books and people would say, why do you want to read all these books? You know, you're already enlightened. You don't need this stuff. He said, well, I've got to have something to talk about. And literally he would scour, you know, and actually one point in time, I had a job of going to the bookstores in what was then Bombay, now Mumbai, and picking up books for his library. And I come back with these boxes full of these, you know, massive tomes on every conceivable subject on the planet. And he would devour them. And, you know, then there would be some new discussion in talks and stuff. So what he found was 
his whole thing was introducing us to meditation. And his idea of meditation, he says, you don't need a mantra for meditation. You know, that's old, old hat. You don't need that stuff. What you need to do is to be able to be a witness, a witness to your thoughts, a witness to your emotions, a witness to your being, you know? And he would arrange these talks, talking about everything under the sun, fascinating talks. But he'd always say, listen to the gaps between the words. And, you know, he'd be going along in a sentence, all of a sudden, stop. And then you'd kind of drop into this different space. You'd... So inevitably, during his talks, we'll go very, very deep into ourselves. But every now and again, you know, there'd be this kind of slumping a little bit. And so when he looks around and sees everyone kind of a little bit out of it, he'd bring them back with a joke, you know, because everyone, oh, he's going to tell us a story. He's going to tell us a joke, you know, and it's like you laugh a little bit and all of a sudden you're back in your body again. And there's this fascinating thing about laughing. You can't laugh and think at the same time. And so it was another way of getting you out of your head. You know, you're trying to work out what he's talking about, but when you get a joke, it's like, there's a stop and the mind has to shut down. Mm. And so, yeah, he was just, he would crack so many jokes. And yes, you're right, Sandy. I had this extraordinary job, best job I ever had in my whole life. <laughs> Year and a half sitting in his library, you know, surrounded by all these fabulous tomes. And with two other friends, we were writing jokes. And just, you know, sometimes literally finding ourselves laying on the floor crying our eyes out you know just we could not contain ourselves because it was just so much fun laughing our heads off <laughs> <laughs> what a job yeah what a job yeah okay so book number three is the yugas key to un keys to understanding our hidden past emerging present and future enlightenment by joseph selby and david steinmetz published in 2011. It goes into a very deep uh, level of understanding. People are probably familiar with the word, the yugas, and people are probably particularly familiar with the idea of Kali Yuga, you know, the, where the light goes out. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, all kinds of mm -hmm. drastic things happen. And, you know, people have postulated, whether it's the Mayan calendar or, you know, the Aztec calendar, whatever, people have postulated what is the timing of the seasons of the eons of this planet? You know, what's the story of Lemuria? Where, did Atlantis actually happen? What is it all? Where, what's the time frame? And Yogananda, you know, this, uh, this enlightening that came to America and yes. the autobiography of a yogi, he, his master started looking at the whole time frame of humanity and started, you know, meditating very deeply on what, when did consciousness come here? And what kind of shape and form did it come in? You know, are we going to go along with Darwin's idea? You know, we're all descended from a monkey, you know, whatever. Or is there something else that happened here? You know, what happened to all this stuff we call junk DNA? You know, the, the other 12 odd strands of DNA that are all muddled up that nobody can interpret. Was consciousness in a higher form at some stage? And so what this book postulates, this Yuga's book, is... Um, it postulates with verification of the various time frames of humanity. And so they're saying, you know, 13,000 odd years ago, for a spirit to come into a form, a working form here, a humanoid form, one that operates in a carbon-based planet, in a, you know, in a 3D environment, you know, what, what was involved in that? 
And so somehow or other, creation or however you want to say it, engineered it for it to take place. And so in, those, in that time, consciousness would come into this body and there was no need for anything. It was just to have an experience here in the form, you know, come out of the 500th dimension or whatever into the 3D, you know, it's a little thick and stodgy here. And so have the experience. And, you know, there's records in the Bible, Abraham, 900 years old, and, you know, other people, how is that possible? Well, you know, that was it. That was, they came here for the dance, for the experience of, of the form. And in those days, a manifestation, it's like, you know, I'm feeling a little peckish, or I'd like to try eating something. So, oh, there it is all of a sudden. You know, manifestation is instantaneous. There's no issue around it because form and, and spirit are the same thing. So then, you know, the, as we bumble through the universe in this little solar system here, you know, the light starts getting a little dimmer. And so all of a sudden, you know, oh, the instant manifestation doesn't happen so well. Maybe if I cast a spell or say a mantra or something like that, you know, oh, there it is. So that works. And so everyone starts, you know, connecting the spirit and the body again through mantra, you know, because they've lost that sense of, well, I'm just a spirit here having this three-dimensional journey. And so the light starts getting darker and darker and darker. And then all of a sudden, you know, we, we start forming religions. If a whole bunch of people do mantras together, and then all of a sudden, you know, the manifestation takes place. So we start doing communal manifestation processes with mantras and prayers and spells and stuff. And some people are a lot better at it than others, you know, but then the light starts getting darker and darker and darker and we get into the dark ages. And we might, might say that's 2000 years ago around there you know, when Jesus shows up or when Jesus' story happens, you know, the ruins are rude world and they're just, you know, they have their sword and they're just very good at dealing with people with it. They take over everything. And there's all, you know, we'd have to say dark ages, very extraordinary histories and stories in that, but very dark ages, slavery to the max, you know, just ridiculous lifestyles. The, you know, the 1% probably did very well, the rest of it, not so well. So then, you know, the, as what the book suggests is we start coming out of that time. You know, the current starting reversing. We have the Renaissance in, in uh, Italy. And, you know, China is inventing all kinds of amazing things. Japan also. And then, you know, the Renaissance suffers because the religions are not quite done yet. You know, they, they cause a lot of issues around that. But then, of course, you know, we have this... Uh, 1781, when, when the planet Uranus is discovered, and Uranus is the Aquarian planet, it's the ninth planet, it's the, it's the fifth dimensional planet. And we could say 1781 onwards, the, the age of science started. And science starts challenging all these belief systems. And you'd have to say in this time, we are excelling so fast, not only in technology, but in healing modalities. And you know, med meditation is now a household word. And everybody's recognizing, wow, there's an amazing change going on here. And so what the Yuga's book describes is the whole process of what was available all that time ago and how, you know, slowly, 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 we went into this darkness and now we're coming out at light speed. And so we don't need the runes anymore, don't need the mantras anymore. What we need to do is to recognize, is to reconnect inside ourselves, to get rid of all the bullshit and everything we've been told about life you know, to get rid of all the belief systems with, that have been imposed on us, all the conditioning, and to come back into our own truth. 
And so that is what that book is all about. And it's some beautiful stories about it all, you know, all the different cultures, what they exhibited in the various time frames, and, you know, bringing us up right up to this point in time where we literally are coming out into the light again at high speed. It reminds me very much of Carl Kalaman's um, Nine Waves of Creation. And he's the uh, Mayan calendar, the Swiss scientist Mayan calendar expert. Um, and I understand the way that you've laid it out there, it dovetails very neatly. He's also, you know, logged these waves of consciousness that happened at certain periods in history that we yeah. can track. Um, and that sounds absolutely fascinating. But um, something here that you'd written, um, so we are accelerating out of the dark ages, believe it or not, everybody, and into an era that is going to be more and more aligned with the natural movement, or as they suggest, the natural return to times of higher consciousness. Yes. How far away is that, Jatan? I mean, right everybody's, here. it's right here? Right here, Sandy, yeah. Right here. We are moving out of a time of evolution. You know, survival of the fittest, I was reading the other day, we're actually the survival of the friendliest is what really works, you mm -hmm. know? And we're moving out of just automatic evolution, which is brought about through viruses, basically. You know, the viruses change the DNA yes. and we morph and move into some other form. Yeah. And we're moving out of just regular, you know, nature organizing it. We're moving into an age of conscious revolution, where actually humanity using our intelligence can play, work, whatever you want to say about it, with nature and direct it. So finally, it's almost like the keys to the car are being offered to us. We can actually, you know, if we decide to drop the dinosauric tendencies, the, you know, these old ideas about we've got to behave in a certain way, and we move into this Aquarian age, which is all about personal responsibility, you know, personal intelligence, personal responsibility. You know, when we move into that, all of a sudden we are creating consciously again. And so, yes, the light will turn on very, very bright. But, and you know, there's a few dinosaurs still rumbling around. Yes. You know, we're, we're finding a way, the fishes, you know, the Piscean age fish's tail is still flapping, but, you know, the life is going out of it. Mm. Yeah, we still a little bit more craziness to get through. Yeah, a bit more. A bit more, yeah. Okay, so that brings us to book number four, which is Astrology, a Cosmic Science, the classic work on spiritual astrology by Isabel Hickey, published in 2011. And I have to say, I've read so many astrology books, I had never come across this one. It was my good fortune to run into my wife and partner, Carola, in uh, 1998. And uh, she is uh, just, you know, goodness knows how many lifetimes she's been doing astrology. But she is genius when it comes to astrology. And she was kind of, you know, she wanted to learn human design. So that was the first part of our life together was, you know, working around. She had a whole practice with astrology and I had a whole practice with human design, but she wanted to know more about human design. So our energy, our attention went towards that. But then she got frustrated with me and said, look, there are certain things about astrology you must know. And if you, you know, here's the book. And she gave me Elizabeth Hickey's book. And I have to say, it was very easy to understand, very easy to read, brilliant. I'd read books by Alan Oaken before, 
and uh, I thought his stuff was amazing, as above, so below, like really amazing, mm. like he was ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. And uh, then Isabel Hickey just put the icing on the cake and kind of filled out the whole story for me. So I would never describe myself as really good at astrology. I've, I've done several astrology readings over the years, but you know, my focus has always been human design. But it, to me, it is essential to know some aspects of astrology, absolutely essential. And to me, that book just covers everything that I would say are the essentials. Good. I'll have to check that one out. Add it to my yeah. library. Um, the next book is one that, um, yes, you know, Richard Rudd, good friend of yours, Gene Keys, Unlocking the Higher Purpose Hidden in Your DNA. And I think Richard first published that in 2013. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, Richard and I, you know, it was, it was kind of love at first sight with Richard. It's like, you know, two English guys, we met in Maui. He was living in the jungle in Haiku in Maui and I went to give him a reading. And, you know, I'm driving down these dirt trucks trying to find his house in the middle of the jungle. And I eventually find it, you know, get out of the car, mud everywhere, climb across to go to his house. And I'm met by his wife at the door, like a double fly screen door. She opens up the flying screen. She's not wearing a stitch of clothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is life in Maui and just very free spirit. And, you know, Richard's there and just, you know, welcome, you know, lovely to meet you. And I sit down and I read his human design for him. And, you know, like we just had this instant bonding, connection, understanding, whatever. It was just friendship at first sight. and. He got it, you know, not everyone I read for just gets the way he got it. And he realized, you know, I need to study this stuff. And he started going to the classes that Ra, who was the person that was given human design, was doing, uh, particularly in, in Taos, New Mexico, and in the Sedona in Arizona. And uh, it just Richard was fascinated by the whole thing. And so in the end, he had to go back to England because his partnership broke up and he, you know, he went back to England to start a life there. And he actually studied with Ra personally, one-on-one -on -one for quite a while. And got to a point of understanding with human design where he realized, I have to do something different. You know, Ra's got his way of talking about human design and expressing stuff. And parts of it just do not fit in my way of seeing things. And so he withdrew. And at that time, he'd started building up a little bit of a clientele, but he didn't want to teach. And so he invited Carol and myself to go over to England and take on his students and start teaching human design there, which we did. And we had an amazing trip. We had some great interactions, great clients. And we started opening up this little kind of school in Newcastle on time. And for one reason or another, he then decided, now I'd like to start teaching myself. So he goes up there to do a class and, um, has a great time with it and he's on the train on the way back down to Devon where he's living and all of a sudden he starts getting this download on the train and he said for the next six days or so and this was the exact time that Venus was transiting across the face of the sun he got this download and he was totally overwhelmed by it and I just happened to be going to England a month or so later and I, and I said hey Richard you know how about meeting up and he said look You've got to meet me. This thing happened. I've got to tell you all about it. So, yeah, um, I drive to where he's staying, or we meet kind of halfway from where he lives. 
and uh, near Warwick Cathedral in England. We sit in mm -hmm. this little cafe with a big service of tea in front of us. For an hour and a half, he talks. I don't say a dicky bird, nothing. Hour and a half, he gives me the whole download of what it was that happened to him. The tea gets ice cold, you know, everything's ignored. And it's like, we both kind of, you know, hug and leave. And then all of a sudden he's putting together this Gene Keys. And the Gene Keys is basically one of the most extraordinary books you'll ever come across because it works on the premise of the I Ching, the Chinese Book of Changes, the 64 hexagrams. And what he did was he examined each one or got the download on each one of the lowest possible frequency of a hexagram, you know, the absolute kind of lowest mean that most people live by, basically. And then started seeing, you know, there's, there's, there's an introvert and extrovert side of working with that lowest common denominator. But you want to move out and get into a higher pl plane, you know, there's a key. And he'd produce these words, these key words that would give you the, oh, yeah, I can see. I don't have to kind of shuffle backwards and forwards in this thing that's taking me nowhere. If I use this key, I can get into a much higher state of consciousness. And so that's what his book is all about, that Gene, Gene Key's book. And he developed a whole science around it. He's expanded massively. And he's just, it's not human design. It's not the same thing as human design at all. But it's a, just another approach to self-awakening. Mm. And it's just a beautiful tool. He's a wonderful fellow. And, you know, I'd really encourage people, if you haven't got the Gene Keys and you haven't read it yet, get it. You know, do it bit by bit. Don't feel like you're going to read cover to cover. Do it bit by bit. And it'll make sense in its own way, in its own time. Yeah. 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 I mean, I love any system, um, you know, for me, there's pieces of the pie. And when, in fact, it was Richard that introduced me to you told me about you um, after somebody had told me about human design yeah. and pointed me in the direction of Richard and he said well there's a man my teacher's on your doorstep <laughs> and, um, but and when I found human design it was like another piece of the pie of self-knowledge um, which has always fascinated me which is what drew me to astrology um, and of course Gene Keys you know I tend to think of it as um, uh, you know, the little trivial pursuit things, you know, plastic circles, and you put the pieces of the pie in. And that's what it feels like to me. Yeah. It's a piece that's got human design and another piece that's gene keys and astrology. Um, yes, and it's absolutely fascinating. It is really amazing. Fascinating. Yeah, absolutely yeah. amazing. So, yeah, wonderful. Mm -hmm. So the next book, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Is it Shantaram or Shantaram? Shantaram. Shantaram by Gregory David Roberts and it's um, part one of a novel so uh, tell us when you came across this and uh, you know what's in it for you you know I lived in India for four years uh, part you know the first part of it was kind of a tour guide driving a bus all over the place and visiting all these extraordinary sites in India and you know meeting these amazing people in India I remember you know being absolutely flummoxed by having philosophical discussions with seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, who knew way more about life than I did. You know, just absolutely amazing. And I spent a good bit of time in Mumbai and Bombay and had some adventures there. You know, the, the friend I was talking about earlier that introduced me in the end or convinced me to go to Osho, he would take me all around the, the Thieves' Bazaar. He'd take me to the Oakham Dens. You know, he'd, he'd introduce me to some of the, you know, quite obvious criminal elements in, in that part of the world. 
And so this book, Shantaram, is a story about an Australian man who has to go to jail and escapes, makes a run for it, and, you know, finds himself in India, where, you know, you can, if you're crafty, you can disappear. But he has these skills, he has this forgery skills. And somehow or other, he gets involved with one of the mobs there in Mumbai, Bombay. And just, I could relate to it because, you know, I'd met some of that element. I hadn't gotten involved with it. But there's, you know, there's always some kind of bargaining or dealing or something going on. But you kind of want to stay away a little bit from some of the more freaky aspects of it. You know, it's literally like a, a mafia in India. And he was, you know, he got taken in by one of the families on a state of being completely distrusted to start with. But then over time, he proved himself over and over and over again as a really valuable asset for their, you know, for their operations. And he would forge passports and stuff for them. <laughs> and, you know, it's just that's part of the life scene there in India. You, anything you want, you can get it one way or another. You know, if somebody else got it and you want it, you'll get it. <laughs> so it's just, it's a, to me, it was a fascinating story about one of the most mysterious on the planet. And just examining human nature in a very particular way. On one level, it was survival. On another level, it was extraordinarily generous and open-hearted. And, you know, it was, it was literally a tribal thing of, of different factions and what his place was at all and how he earned his trust in this completely foreign group to him, but he earned his trust by, you know, playing an honorable part in it. He ends up in jail in Mumbai. You know, it's like, you do not want to go to jail in Bombay. <laughs> you, know, and he's, you know, the survival practices he had to put up with there, really an extraordinary story. So as a novel, just unbeatable, mm. thoroughly recommended. So number seven is Tolkien, Complete Works. Yes. Do you know, you, I think you may be the first person to come up with this so far. You're the first person to mention this book, and I'm really surprised that it hasn't been mentioned before because uh, for me, it's a game changer. Um, what was it like for you? I echo, absolute game changer. Mm. I was in boarding school in England and... Uh, <laughs> I remember when I, when I got my hands on the on the Lord of the Rings and, you know, the three thick volumes of it. And, you know, it was in the house library. I didn't have a copy of it myself, but I literally, I'd go in and out of the library. Is the book there? No, somebody's got it. And who's got it? I'll find out who's got it. When are you going to finish it? You know, and it's like, literally, the moment they finished it, they signed it in, I signed it out, gone. And what he went through, what Tolkien went through, in his life, you know, watching the story of England, the decay of the empire, uh, you know, the loss of the British empire, the first world war, which basically finished the whole thing off, the absolute devastation that happened and the desolation, you know, like the battlefields mm. of, of, and it's, you know, Mordor. And it's just, you know, the spirit of the tiniest of creatures, the tiniest of beings that, somehow brings the courage to to triumph in a drama of extraordinary levels and you know in england i don't know about you sandy i grew up in the countryside in england and uh, you know there was this 
um, thing of uh, is the is the fairy kingdom there? You know, is the are the elves and pixies a reality? And I know as a kid, I got these touches on my shoulders or these, you know, quirks in the flower arrangements or whatever, you know, that made it really clear to me, yes, there are other levels of consciousness here. They don't always tend to make themselves available. And uh, so, yes, it was a very, very easy thing to engage with what way he was going with those books, you know, from the absolute, you know, crash of society to the courage that's needed to bring everything back to, uh, you know, to re resurrect it. Mm. And the multiple different characters and facets and different layers of consciousness and abilities and the magic of it all, being reminded of the magic of life. I remember as a child, I think I was about four or five years old, I'd had some kind of argument in the house and I'd run out of the house and I went and sat in my tree. I say my tree, I had two trees. One was a juniper and one was an oak tree. And I was sitting in this oak tree and I, the oak tree was commiserating with me. Literally, we'd have conversations. Mm. <laughs> These people I don't understand at all, but you, I totally understand. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the Ents, that really appealed to me because he tuned into that, the, you know, the wisdom of the trees. Trees talk to each other all the time. And they've been watching the stars forever. You know, we go to bed at night, they don't. They're still in touch with the universe. So yeah, that was just a beautiful, um, beautiful um, reminder of the courage of the adventure of going through life. And it just, it's inspired me ever since. I don't identify with any of the particular characters in it, but just all of them. It's like, they're all my family. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, I read that when I was 23 and um, came a little bit late to it. And like you, you know, I always knew, I never had any proof, I never saw any evidence, but I always knew that fairies existed. And I used to sit in trees and read all the time. I didn't talk to the trees, not that I'm aware of. But when I got my hands on that book, and I used to read a lot of, you know, folk tales from different countries, not so much fairy tales, but folk tales. When I got that book, there was something, it, even though it was fiction, for me, it was evidence. Yes, I'd agree. Absolutely, mm. I'd agree. And, the, you know, the, the, how easy it is to be taken over by, you know, the promise of power. Yeah. And how essential it is to stay bright and courageous and clear in one's own... Yeah connection into life yeah. Mm. yeah beautiful so number eight quite different on the beach Neville shoot published in 1957 i thought that was a bit of a strange one to pop into your list again i was at boarding school and this fellow neville shoot had been to the same school and all his books were in the library he'd been in the same part of the school and um i read every one cover to cover this particular one on the beach it's it's a story of people on a, on a nuclear submarine. And there's been a global war. There's been a nuclear war. So on the one side, they're using nuclear energy to convey themselves through the sea, through the oceans. On the other side of it, nuclear energy has been used to destroy everything on the planet. And so they come up to get signals from base and there is no base anymore. Like everyone's dead. 
they're the only survivors on the whole planet in this nuclear submarine under the water. So they come up and they stick their antenna up out of the water, you know, nothing. Oh, hang on a minute, there's this little radio signal. Where's it coming from? And they get a fix on it. It's coming from somewhere in Australia. And it's a garbled signal, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It's not Morse code making any sense, but they, they feel like this is the only thing that we've heard from anywhere. We need to go and investigate. So they take their submarine under the ocean, it's nuclear powered, so they can, you know, it's self-maintaining. And they find their way all the way around to where the signal is being generated. And then they, you know, they put on their radiation outfits, get out and go and look to where the signal's coming from. And it's basically, it's a Morse code generator where there's a Coca-Cola bottle that's somehow got tied up in the window sash and it's just triggering the button randomly. And so to me, it was like, it was such a reminder of the usefulness of nuclear energy on the one side and the absolute devastating effect of it on the other side. How it absolutely takes us nowhere. And we've got to be clear about it. So in this time, a fascinating time we're in now, because people are re-examining nuclear fuel, we're done with the fossil fuels, I hope. You know, whale oil, it all started with, and then, you know, fossil fuels. And we're looking now in nuclear fusion. So I believe in France, they're, they're building a fusion reactor now, fascinating to watch. But what they've discovered is this is element called helium-3, which is a rare element on this planet, but it's quite common on the moon. And so now the Space Force, you know, the American Space Force is now engineering a program to go and mine this stuff on the moon and bring it back here so we can have nuclear fusion. So stay tuned. I'm fascinated with these things. You know, to me, there are other forms of energy we have not discovered yet that we have to embrace. And that book really did it for me on the one level, you know, how amazing this energy source is, but how ghastly it is when it's put in the wrong hands. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Pretty much say that about everything, can't you? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing emerging in what what you're saying about these different books. There seems to be this, uh, um, you know, yin and yang thing, this um, dark and light that keeps emerging. You know, on the one hand, this, but look at it from that point of view, and you get a whole other story. Yeah, really, mm. really. And that's, that's, again, you know, I come back to what Osho used to talk about. Mm. There's always two sides to a story. Yeah. You know, darkness is an absence of light. That's all. Yeah. The moment you put light on, there isn't darkness. Where is it? It's gone. There isn't any. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so you know, our, our whole thing is to see, yes, there is darkness, but the moment you put a bit of light on it, it's gone. So how do you put light on something? You elevate your consciousness, you light up, you become enlightened. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So number nine is the Handbook of Alternatives to Chemical Medicine by Mildred Jackson. This was published in 1975. And I thought, ooh, that's a book for my library, but they're charging $900, I think, on Amazon for a copy. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> you know, this has been a handbook. It's been in every piece of luggage I've had for years and years and years. And um, I grew up in a household where, you know, it was the 50s. I grew up in the 50s. Medicine, you know, dark ages, really dark ages. I mean, it's still in the dark ages, but, you know, there's a hope for it. 
the moment start we start more holistic practice will you know something will start happening but in those days i i have to say i was tortured i was tortured by the medical community oh this is for your own good whatever and uh i broke or damaged both my legs very badly at one two different incidents and you know the treatment i got for that it's like please you know can't you just chain me to the wall or something instead hang drawn and quarter me it's like it was so painful and so unnecessarily so but anyway and then um, i got a disease of some sort nobody knew what it was but the treatment for it was a, an injection in my butt every hour on the hour day and night for 10 days and in the end of it they still didn't know what they were treating but by that time i said i've had enough with this nonsense and so i i really consciously started looking for alternative medicine and uh, this book by mildred jackson is just it came into my hands i looked at it it's my goodness this stuff is absolute genius absolute genius simple simple things to get out of all kinds of medical difficulties everything cross the board i don't think there was a single thing she missed out on household remedies you know a real good witch's brew i want it i want it i'll you know maybe some publisher would uh, you know re re resurrect it it resurrect is so worthwhile yeah. Yeah. yeah you know i would wish for the book to be republished it is a magical mm. book that's all i can say about it magical to this day i look in it every time i get some kind of quirk or something i'm you know have i really researched this properly i look in there and it's like she's got something simple stuff okay all right well let's you know put that intention out there and the last book on your list number 10 uh and i've always had a problem uh pronouncing this as well um the <laughs> brothers uh karamazov 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 by fyodor dostoevsky um okay and that was published as a serial in the russian messenger from january 19 1879 to november 1880 so tell us about how this book impacted you well this was the time again when i was in retreat in the shetland islands after the time we should have sunk several times in the atlantic you know without a trace and i was literally you know what's the story here how come i'm still here what do i need to do to uh, you know get a grip on on how humanity behaves you know what's other people's input so i read all the russian authors i read war of peace a couple of times um i read you know all of them shekhov you know nabokov and uh, arrived at dostoevsky's books and there was something fascinating about how he would describe people and their attitudes and how they interacted and how they would read other people and how they would alter their behaviors according to other people and it was like a comprehensive like an encyclopedic view of the human race and it's just a fun, you know in those days i think dickens used to do the same thing he would write a book and chapter by chapter conan doyle the same thing sherlock holmes mm. chapter by chapter it would end up in a publication and that was how they got their return on it yeah but um the brothers dostoevsky of the brothers karamazov is um it's just a great story of of you know family interaction and that you'd have to say about russia it's very tribal um you know the russians are for russia 
and uh, you know the, within a family there are certain things that are absolutely essential and certain things that cannot be you know contradicted so it was just it was a whole viewing of the the full spectrum of life behaviors i became fascinated by dostoevsky because he just had this style that nobody else had and i read into his life story i mean good lord what this man went through put on the firing squad you know to be shot and literally gets a stay from the from the emperor from the tsar you know just before somebody's about to pull the trigger and then gets sent off to siberia to the gulag instead you know and survives that and somehow comes back and he still wants to play and he still wants to write and he comes out with these extraordinary stories and you'd have to say a lot of the stories come from his personal experience i mean can you imagine being put in a gulag in siberia in the 1800s you know, mm -hmm. you're literally an outcast and nobody ever wants to hear from you again. Yeah. And yet he gets a reprieve when he comes back and he takes part again. And so I would, I just, when I started learning human design, he was one of the first people's charts I wanted to find out. And he's a reflector in human design. This is a less than one percentile of the world's population. Reflectors come here in a lifetime that has to be a lifetime of complete trust. Trust that existence is going to look after you. You know, God's going to provide for you in one way or another. That's got to be the trust. And because you just get bumped around, pillar to post, all over the place. But the, the thing is, he lived an extraordinary life, an exemplary life, I'd say. And very often you'd say about reflectors, what they're reflecting is they reflect people back to themselves. And mostly they do it through love. And they just have an extraordinary lifetime. A lot of them totally succumb because they don't get it. They don't know how different their makeup is in, in terms of everybody else. They're not like anybody else at all. They're completely separate from anybody else's life experience. And yet they, they engage. And when they do, my experience, I mean, I tell everybody in your life, there need to be two people in your life. One's a reflector. The other's a manifester. You know, in human design, 10% of the world's population are manifestors. You want to get something done, see if the manifesto will help you with it. You know, they may not. But, you know, and get meet a reflector and be around a reflector every now and again, if they will let you. Because when you need to find out if you're on the right track or not, you know, they will give you a pure reflection of who you are and what you're doing. And you either get it or you don't. So, yeah, very, very special, special man is Fyodor Dostoevsky. And his so... If, if his you know, whole thing is about trust, my goodness, did he have lots of opportunity to practice that one? I mean, you can't get you know, more trust in than being in front of the firing squad and yeah. Yeah. believing that you're gonna survive. I mean, can you get the picture there? You've got your blindfold on, you're strapped up to the post, the guns are all pointing at you. Yeah. And then all of a sudden a messenger arrives and says, oh, by the way, the Tsar has pardoned him. Well, he's got to go to the Gulag instead. <laughs> okay and then he's got to trust all through that yeah. i mean astonishing yeah. astonishing if you had to take one book from your list to give to somebody that you care about who which book would you want to give someone that they could learn the most about life perhaps in this the first case one. The, the first one yeah glimpses yeah. of a golden childhood yeah it basically, it is our birthright coming here to be given an honorable childhood. 
where you're just adored, you're just loved, you're just encouraged, you're just, you know, you have an accident, it's mopped up, you know, you just, but you explore. Yeah. And you're allowed to say whatever you want, provided you do it from a place of love. And, you know, that is the encouragement. So that is the book I would offer. It's a gorgeous story. I mean, story after story after story of mm. what is our birthright and how he came to understand this very high level of consciousness that he came in with. You know, there's a, a question that's arisen for me as we've been talking, um, and that is, you've led such a fascinating life. Somebody's already posted that it should be a movie. Um, <laughs> do you, you know, living in California, <laughs> or, <laughs> giving in, living in California, pretty much on lockdown, or heading back no, there, no, no, um, do you do you sometimes think you've had the best of it? Do you miss this incredible life that you lived? What do you Would mean? you do I'm it just, again? I'm just getting warmed up, Sandy. <laughs> but there's no Osho. <laughs> there is Osho. It's just he's in an invisible form these days, but his presence is still absolutely here. I, you know, I would also say to anyone listening in on this, you know, you want to have an experience of meditation where you are literally walking through a gateway taken into a place of meditation, go to his place in Pune in India, the Osho International Community. Unbelievable, this place. Yeah, you'll, it'll be a before and an after for you. You ever wanted to understand what meditation is all about? Take a couple of weeks, go there. Have you ever been back? Out. Yeah, I have. I went last year. Mm -hmm. Blew my mind. You know, literally that experience, walking through the gate and having to sit down. And a lot of my old friends there still, you know, coming and going, but the, the place has turned into, I mean, they call it a resort. It's just got a beautiful swimming pool, tennis courts, all of that stuff. But the meditation is the core of the whole thing, the meditation and celebration. That was also Osha's message. You know, be in the world, but not of it. Yes. Zorba the Buddha. You know, Zorba, you play the Zorba to the max. You know, eat, drink, be merry, celebrate, whatever. The Buddha, find your message meditation be in a meditative space that was his whole message and that is what is available there you'll find the place is full of meditation and full of celebration and just you know it, it, when i was there in the 70s and the 80s it was like you know better represented than the united nations there were more nationalities there more cultures there than anywhere else mm -hmm. and it's the same kind of thing it's everyone's welcome everybody's accepted there it's just but if you ever, as I say, you ever want to really understand what meditation is, do yourself a favor, make a trip there. Well, you, you just said that you are raring to go, that, you know, you, you've only just got started in um, life's adventures. What could you plan that would equal the adventures you've had? Oh, I've no idea. But, uh, you know, I'm doing a motorbike trip to Alaska next year from here. It's like a three-week trip. On your own? Um, no, with a friend. He rides a Harley Davidson. I ride a Honda Goldwing. It's a, it's a great trip. We do a lot of traveling together like that. That's mm -hmm. an adventure I've got on the ticket now. I mean, you know, traveling's a little awkward at the moment, trying to go overseas. But I had several, <clears throat> excuse me, several. I go to China three times a year under normal circumstances to teach there. Fascinating. Whatever you've heard about China, it's like, forget it. Go there and try it for yourself. Absolutely amazing such an amazing country and uh, yeah i was going to go to turkey this year italy this year you know they all got scrubbed because of the um, yeah. thing the thing yeah. 
the thing. The, the viruses thing. change consciousness. That's what they do. Yes. They change our consciousness. They mess with our DNA and upgrade it. <laughs> yeah. Any plans to write your autobiography? It's about 90,000 words in. Yes. Ah, well, I want to read that one. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so keywords. I asked you when you were compiling your list to give me some keywords or phrases that you would use to describe yourself. And you came up with 21st century mystic, human design world teacher, puts the human in human design. You didn't say Osho's joke, joke writer. Um, but I would like to have one from you that is very personal, something that the average person wouldn't know about you, maybe something that your loved ones, you know, a little descriptor um, that gives us a little bit more of an insight into who you are. You want just a little phrase? A word or a phrase, yes. No, it'll have to be a fool. A fool. <laughs> <laughs> As in the uh, tarot? Well, you know, kind of like that, but also the one with the tricorn hat that's sitting in the court trying to poke fun at everybody. Yeah. You know, life, we tend to take life too seriously because we've forgotten, you know, death and life are the same thing. It's just one you're in an outfit, one you're not. You know, one you have a converted monkey outfit for a different expression of it, you know, the other you don't, the other you're in yeah. free form. Yeah. And, you know, this is, life is just an extraordinary reality. But we take way too seriously. We think we're supposed to do something here. You know, I, I started out reading hands for people. You know, that was my, I had to earn some money when I was living in Hawaii. So I'd read hands half a day a week in a bookshop. And people would ask me that, you know, particularly women would come in and have a session with me. And they'd ask me, you know, I've got two things, you know, what am I supposed to do with my boyfriend? You know, he's such an idiot. And I say, you know, I'm sorry, I can't help you there. <laughs> The other question is, what's my purpose? You know, what's my purpose in life? What am I here for? And, you know, I can look in somebody's hand. I can look at their design and say, well, look, you're good at this. You're good at that. Here's your gifts here and there. And, and then it just dawned on me one day. It's obvious what we're here for. We're here to be ourself. Yeah. That's it. Win, lose or draw, rain or shine, whatever. You're here to be, you're here to be you, a unique expression of consciousness in human form with multiple gifts, multiple facets, extraordinary potential of intelligence, sense of humor, adventure, laughter, good food, good drink, good company. You know, all of these things are possible for us here. And yet we all shuffle through life. You know, we're all looking for a purpose. I'm supposed to be this. And someone told me I'm supposed to do that. And I go to the careers office and, you know, at school and they tell me this is the job you've got to get. And, you know, be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good kid, behave yourself. Life has nothing to do with that stuff at all. Life is a celebration. Everything here is celebrating. Dogs wag their tails, birds sing their heads off, trees wave in the breeze. Everything is celebrating. Fish jump out of the water. Where are they jumping out of the water? Goodness knows. Maybe they're having a fun day. We need to do the same thing. Celebration. So, yeah, we're here, to, we're here to be ourselves. Yeah, that's it. End of story. Yeah. So Instead the human design is a great guide, how to tune into what you gave yourself for this lifetime. You know, it's the first system that connects form to spirit. The very first, this is how, this is what you gave yourself. This is how it works. Clue into it. 
And all of a sudden you start seeing that your life starts working according to you on your terms. You are in tune with nature. And yeah. you find yourself moving more and more and more into the present tense. Life is the present tense. We've got all these ideas of what happened before and we project into the future what might happen up there. But this moment is the reality. And the thing is, when you get your human design, you really understand it. Here you are. It doesn't matter who and what confronts in your life. You are in present tense with it. You don't react. You interact. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one of the best things I ever did, having my human design done by you. It certainly... <laughs> It was such a, an interesting experience after so many years of study of astrology. Um, it, you know, it opened up um, more dimensions for me. And at the end of it, you know, I said to somebody, I, I don't know what I learned. I think I'm going to have to think about that for quite some time. But what I got from it was this tremendous permission to be me. Ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. So I encourage anybody, anybody, everybody to have your human design done. Um, okay, so it's time. We don't really have many questions. We have some wonderful comments. Um, you know, people are just uh, overwhelmed. You know, uh, what an incredible summation of the ages. That was about the yugas. Inspirational. Um, I really like uh, your storytelling style. <laughs> explaining complex concepts and um, Francis said what amazing information and so absolutely pertinent to right now mm -hmm. um, she loved everything you've described about your life um, thought you were brilliant wants to know your thoughts on numerology well it, it's another magical science you know numbers are just a fabulous science mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, there are there, there's a number of different ways of reading numerology as i know i did i played with it for quite a while really enjoyed it but yeah i would encourage play with it by all means it's wonderful mm. but the thing of it is here's the thing you know we're given we used to have just libraries full of stuff and then we got google so we got <laughs> you know a whole sphere of access to knowledge knowledge is fabulous Knowledge is something that can really, you know, fill a gap for us or inspire us in some way. But the thing with knowledge is you have to keep it fresh. You have to keep, you know, going further with it. You can't get stuck. Well, this is where it is. You know, we've got to keep moving with it. So knowledge has to keep being interesting. But there's a difference between knowledge and knowing. Right? Knowledge you find you read in a book or somebody tells you a story and it's like, yeah, that's fascinating. Knowing is when you get it. Yeah. When you get your own reality, you get your own truth, you get the moment, you get the gap between the words you drop into yourself. Yeah. And you're just totally, you know, connected floor to ceiling into the center of the universe, wherever else. That's it. You're in the present, you're in the moment, you're in this. This is it. And to, to me, the whole journey of life has to be from knowledge, fascinating stuff, to knowing. Yeah. This is who I am. This is my reality. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. It's what I call getting it in the muscle. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you still offering the free software and free human design report? 
yes, so we're free on the website. And we have a free app as well. Anyone can drop charts with a free app. Okay, great. And you can go to the website, humandesignforusall.com. You can see, read um, uh, Chatan's comments on his book selections on his page on the website in the um, 10 Best List Archive. Chetan Parkin, thank you so much. It's always a delight to talk with you. And up until now, apart from when we've been talking on air about a book, I've always had the pleasure of just being able to sit and speak to you and ask anything I want. And it's such a delight for me to be able to share you with everyone else. Thank you, Sandy. The teapot is here anytime you call by. Next time I make it to America, and I hope it's not too far away, I will call by the for definite. And somebody, a Jane has said, this may be my favourite interview. Um, there. So I, I couldn't end on a better note. Thank you. Thank you. So and much. say hi to Carola. And to all of you at home, thank you. And if you're not aware, we do have a private Facebook group where we can all connect. You can uh, share your thoughts about uh, this one and you get to see it first as soon as it's been edited. Um, and that's it for this week. I'll see you again next week, I hope. Thank you for joining us. Bye.